I would also like to encourage each of you to take advantage of the modern technology God has provided most all of us access to in this day and age. We have access to so much worship music, preaching and teaching, podcasts, blogs, ebooks, and they're all via the internet. It's easier now than ever before to be in God's Word every day. God has blessed us with access to these resources, and God is greatly glorified when we add these blessings to our lives. And there's no reason for all of us not to be in God's Word or singing about God multiple times throughout the day because it's right usually on our, in our hands, in our phones. Of course, we do need to be discerning in what we choose to listen to because we know the Internet is full of false teaching. Make sure that you're listening to, whether it's music or teaching is, and preaching, it's biblically based. Make sure that you can match what they say with what the Bible is saying. And I'd also like you to consider something here that maybe many of you have not ever considered before. Did you know that when individuals in a church body are in God's Word throughout the week, they become a great source of blessing to their pastor? Did you ever think about that? Multiple times a week, people from this congregation, from Sardis Baptist Church, tell me how God has blessed them through a song, a sermon, a podcast. Inevitably, they will also send me the link of what they're listening to. I cannot tell you how many sermons and podcasts and blogs and, hey, did you read this or did you find this? I get on a weekly basis. Those are all blessings to my life. Continue them. But I'm going to be up front with you right now. There's no possible way I can listen to them all because I would not get anything else done. But it's a blessing to a pastor to have his congregation, his sheep, give him feedback to what God is doing in their lives. This week, someone did send me a link that I did have a chance to listen to. It's a Christmas message that I really enjoyed. It was a great sermon. What caught my attention is the pastor made a comment about Christmas and the babe in the manger that was very similar to the point we have been making during our Advent series. Namely, we often get so focused on the babe in the manger that we lose sight of the grandeur of God's plan of salvation conceived in eternity past. We get so focused on the cute story, we get so focused on what's going on on the stage and all the Christmas carols that we forget that what happened at the babe in the manger started an eternity passed with the plan of God. It started in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. This pastor used a puzzle as his example to help his people grasp what he was saying. He pointed out that you can put together a few pieces of a puzzle and really feel like you've accomplished something. Maybe the pieces that you put together reveal a portion of a flower or the foot of an animal or of a cobblestone on a street. But if those pieces are the only ones you put together, then you miss the point of the whole puzzle. There is no context for the pieces that you've put together. Therefore, what you uh, have is a few pieces of a larger picture that doesn't inspire much of anything. It's just a piece of puzzle. It's not like you would frame the foot of an animal that your pieces reveal and hang it on your wall. However, if you put the whole puzzle together, the pieces you first put together are now given a context, and the whole picture may be something that you want to display in your home. This pastor's point is that if we only focus on the babe in the manger during the Advent season, we miss the grand plan of God, the same point we're making. It becomes easy then to take the babe in the manger event and place it in contexts that don't reflect the real focus of Christmas. And we have a tendency to do that. 
The story of the baby in the manger could become focused on us, our salvation, our peace, our needs, His coming to save us. And are all those things true? Yes, but that's not the focus. The focus of the babe in the manger is look at how much God loves us, how much God is bringing him glory by sending his son here, and it started in eternity past. That's the context. The babe in the manger is just one small part of everything God is planning from when time began, when he said, let there be light, to the time when he comes back in Revelation. It's only a small part. The Christmas holiday that is supposed to celebrate the birth of, Christ, of the Christ child can also become focused on family traditions, shopping, roasting chestnuts on an open fire, Christmas carols, and sleigh rides in the snow. If we remove it out of the context, it just becomes a thing that we do, a thing that is part of the season. We see it that way instead of celebrating the, a celebration of God's plan to bring glory to Himself through the salvation of those who have placed their faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. This pastor made a really good point. The Christmas story God gave us must always be seen in the context of His provision for salvation for mankind. It is only then that we begin to grasp the wonder of His plan that led to His Son, Jesus Christ, laying in the major, clothed in human flesh. Until we see that bigger context, it really, we don't get the idea of what is going on when Jesus Christ became incarnate flesh on this planet. Why did I pass on to you what this other pastor did with his church? To help us all see that other church bodies are also finding themselves drifting towards the culture that celebrates Christmas in a way that was never intended for it to be celebrated. It is not unusual for God's people to drift towards their culture in many areas, and most of the time that drift is inadvertent. We live in a culture, and that culture is going to influence us. We see that over and over in the Old Testament. We see the nation of Israel struggling to remain different from the pagan cultures they came into contact with, didn't they? They were constantly influenced by the nations around them. They drifted when they wanted to have a king lead them like the other nations around them had instead of having God himself lead them. That's a drift. They were looking around to the other cultures and said, we want what they got. And God said, okay. But they had no clue what they were giving up. God himself was leading them as a nation and they chose a man. They drifted. Israel often found themselves drifting into other pagan religions instead of remaining faithful to the one true God. They found themselves in idolatry all the time. As God's people, we will always have to fight to limit the influence culture has on on us. Sinful culture appeals to our flesh, to our sin nature. And the best way to fight against that is to constantly remind ourselves of who God is and what He has done for us through the preaching and teaching of His Word. That is the best way for us to continually fight against that. And that is why our series, The Road to Bethlehem Leads to Calvary, is also designed to do the very same thing that the puzzle illustration did. We are trying to help ourselves look at God's plan as we would a really long road trip. We've been on this map for a number of weeks, and we've gone to a a number of different places on this map, and you can see where there's a line here, and as you see it, this line is hundreds of miles long. And there's a lot of different stopping points between there. You stop for, you know, a QT, you know, for a coffee at QT or a Coke at QT, all right? You may stop at McDonald's for lunch. And, there's all, and you may stop at it overnight in this town because there's something that you want to see. But we see the whole plan laid out, but there's a whole bunch of little pieces within that plan. 
And that, that's how we're taking this instead of the puzzle. And we started our trip in the town of Paradise, which was the Garden of Eden. We reminded ourselves how God referred to His finished creation as being very good, perfect in a way that we cannot even begin to imagine. That's where we started, Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And then we moved to the town of Rebellion. And this was Genesis chapter 3 where Adam and Eve did what? They chose Satan over God. They chose their own desires over God. We reminded ourselves here how the man's rebellion Adam and Eve's disobedience at eating the forbidden tree completely altered God's creation. Their rebellion brought spiritual death, physical death, into creation. Their disobedience ruined Adam and Eve's perfect marital relationship and separated them from God. And the repercussion from their rebellion is felt throughout all of God's creation, even today. All of creation, we find in Romans chapter 8, groans under the weight of sin. All mankind is cursed with a sin nature which leads them to rebel also against God. The rebellion makes them objects of God's wrath and condemns all to eternity with no hope of being able to fix that situation. That's what we found in the town of rebellion. To help us remember what we learned each week of our series, we pass out a catechism, which is a question and answer teaching format. And the catechism for the towns of paradise and rebellion went like this. Does mankind need a savior? The answer to that first catechism is yes. Mankind, because of their sin, has lost communion with God, are under his wrath and curse, and are spiritually dead. And because of this, mankind in their wretched state is completely alienated from God. Therefore, say it with me, mankind is in great need of what? Savior. That was the first catechism. Last week, we traveled to the town of Promise, the town of Promise. And the catechism for this, we found in this way. The question was, since mankind needs a Savior, has God promised to send a Savior? Has God recognized that we need a Savior? And the answer to that, that we saw last week, is yes. God promised a Savior starting in the Garden of Eden and throughout the Old Testament. That's what we saw last week. We spent most of our time looking at God's promise to send a Savior all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 3.15, we find, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. What hope we find in this passage, because we know that mankind needs a Savior, mankind is condemned, he's destined for eternal separation from God because he loves us. He says, I know you need a Savior, and I promise to send one. That should bring great comfort to us. How many of you here really understand, really deep, deep in the heart and the core of who you are, believe that you need a Savior? That needs to resonate with us. That needs to almost, to a certain extent, make us fearful, because without help, I am going to be eternally separated from the creator of this universe. I will never be what he intended mankind to be. And this brings us to our new town, the town of Revelation. The town of Revelation. And the question that we're going to find answered in this town is this. Since mankind needs a Savior, and God has promised a Savior, those were the first two catechisms, Has God identified the promised Savior? 
Has God identified the promised Savior? God's Word leaves no doubt who God has chosen to be the Savior. The Bible clearly identifies the predicted Savior as Jesus Christ, God's Son, the second person of the Trinity. He has identified the promised Savior. And there are several ways that Jesus is identified as, one, as the one who would be the Savior, the one who would crush the head of Satan, as we found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And the most prevalent of those is prophetic announcements, is through prophetic announcements in the Old Testament that were fulfilled in the New Testament. There is no clear agreement on how many prophecies there are in the Old Testament that pointed to Jesus. Some have as many as 300, but there seems to be one number that constantly comes up in a number of people that I've read, because these are the most clear. And this number is 47, 47 very clear prophecies in the Old Testament that were fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And we need to get a grasp on what that means. Here's something else that somebody sent me. They gave me a quote that comes from an author or authors, Peter Stoner and Robert Newman, in their book, Science Speaks. And it helps us put this 47 number of prophecies in perspective. In their book, they present the improbability of one man fulfilling just eight of those prophecies. We're not talking 47, we're talking eight. And here's here's the example he used. Suppose that we take 10 to the 17th power of silver dollars. Uh, What does it mean to have 10 to the 17th power? What's that mean? 17 zeros. That's a lot of silver coins. If we were to take 10 to the 17th power silver dollars and lay them on the face of Texas, they would cover all of the state two feet deep. Now mark one of those silver dollars and stir the whole mass thoroughly over the whole entire state. Blindfold a man and tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes in the state of Texas, but he must pick up one silver dollar and say that that is the marked coin. What chance would he have? Of finding that marked coin. But think about that. That's the probability that one man would fulfill just what? Eight prophecies out of 47. Think of how many coins that would mean if you had included all 47 prophecies, how deep those coins would be in the state of Texas. When we look at the prophecies of Jesus fulfilled in this light, it staggers our minds. And we can only conclude that God was absolutely in control of this because there's no other way that it could have happened. So I'm going to take a quick look at some of these prophecies. And we're just going to kind of go through them very quickly. And you can write down the passage. I think most of them are in your notes. One of the, the first prophecy is that Jesus Christ would be born of a virgin. And we see this predicted In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be Emmanuel. That happened in the book of Isaiah. And this was fulfilled 630 years later. And we find that fulfillment in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Most of us are familiar with this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth 
to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Then let's jump over to Matthew chapter 121 to give us more context. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name what? Jesus. Jesus is the one that fulfilled that prophecy 630 years after it was made. 630 years after it was made. We also find the second prophecy is the Savior that God has promised to be born in Bethlehem. We see that in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler of Israel, who's coming forth from the old, from ancient of days. This Savior, this promised Savior, was going to come from the town of Bethlehem. It was fulfilled approximately 623 years after that prophecy was made. And we find its fulfillment in Luke chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child, and what happened in that town. The prophecy was filled 630 years later. Then we also see that this Savior... This chosen Savior by God was, had to be from the line of David. It couldn't just be anybody. He had to have a specific lineage, a specific family lineage. We see this outlined in Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 through 6. Behold, the days are coming, declared the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will, be, will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. And Judah will be what? Saved. The idea of salvation is there for this person who is going to be of the line and lineage of David. We find that this prophecy was fulfilled approximately 500 years later in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. This is the whole lineage of Jesus Christ. We're only going to jump around and look at three verses of that whole lineage. The book of the genealogy, so this is the lineage of Jesus Christ. So who's it the lineage of? Jesus Christ. Very specific. This is his lineage all the way back to Adam. Think about that. But let's just look at a couple. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David... So who did he have to come from? What lineage? David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Let's jump down in the passage a little bit. And Jesse the father of whom? David the king, and David was the father of Solomon, laying by the wife of Uriah. And at the very last, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom what? Jesus was born, who is called the Christ whose lineage was specifically laid out to fulfill the prophecy that was made 500 years before. Can you imagine the probability of just this one happening? All those generations that God chose to make sure that this one babe was born of the lineage and line of David in the manger that night in the town of Bethlehem. 
We also see another prophecy about a suffering servant or a savior in Isaiah 53. Again, we don't have time to read the whole chapter. I would recommend that you do go back and read it because it just gives us such good insight, especially during this Christmas season about who the babe in the manger is. But we see this in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised and rejected by men. Who matches that description? Jesus Christ. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Is that true of Jesus Christ throughout his whole life and ministry? Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. Who does that sound like? He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was chastisement that brought us peace. And as with his wounds, we are healed. Did he take our chastisement that we deserved? Amen. And then Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. What did Jesus Christ say through all his trials? He was silent as a lamb. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. Isaiah 53 speaks of everything to do with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And then approximately 616 years later, we find the fulfillment recorded. In Matthew 8:17, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our what? Illnesses and bore our diseases. Matthew 27, verses 12 through 14. But when he, and this is Jesus Christ, was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. And then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave them no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. He was silent as a lamb. And then we see in John 19, 34, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Who was pierced? This prophecy was recorded hundreds of years and then fulfilled in Matthew and in John. And we also see another prophecy. Hands and feet would be pierced and his garments would be divided. And we see this in Psalm chapter 22, verses 16 through 18. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones and they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they they cast lots. The idea of crucifixion had not even been invented yet when the psalmist wrote this psalm. There was no concept of the crucifixion. None. And do they just lay out the crucifixion here, right before our eyes. They pierce my hands and my feet. They, gloat, they stare and gloat over me. What were the people doing around the cross of Jesus? Taunting him. And again, 517 years later, we see it recorded, the fulfillment of this. John chapter 19, 23 through 20, 24. And when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. And so they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And this was to fulfill what? It says it specifically, this was to fulfill the scriptures, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And so the soldiers did these things. Here we have hundreds of years before the crucifixion was even thought of. 
before the idea of Jesus Christ's garments at the foot of the cross being gambled on by the soldiers. We have it recorded that this was going to happen. These five Old Testament prophecies leave little doubt that God has identified Jesus Christ as the Savior that He promised to come to save us from our sins. Other men were born in Bethlehem. Other men could trace their lineage back to King David. But only one man could fulfill every one of these five prophecies, and that man is Jesus Christ. It would seem that these five prophecies are all that would be needed to identify Jesus as that promised Savior. But don't forget, there are 42 others that do the same thing. 47 prophecies identifying Jesus Christ as being the promised Savior. The odds of one man would be fulfilling all of these 47 prophecies is practically incalculable. But Jesus Christ did it. When you look at a manger scene this Advent season, when you sing Away in the Manger this Christmas season, when you see children dressed up as Mary and Joseph and angels and sheep and cattle all looking at the babe in the manger during their Christmas play, let the wonder of the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies by the one who really laid in the manger, Jesus Christ, cause you to rejoice. Let these prophecies change the way that you look at the manger scene this year. We know who the promised Savior is beyond a shadow of a doubt. And God has clearly identified Him through the fulfilled Old Testament prophecies. And again, God has proven Himself to be faithful to us because He promised way back in Genesis 3.15, I will provide a Savior for you. And literally thousands of years later, we see that coming true when Jesus Christ was born. So I want you to think about something. The greatest gift we can give this season is the good news of Jesus Christ. There is nothing on this planet that is a better gift than to give the gospel of Jesus Christ to somebody who doesn't know Him. He is the promised Savior coming down from heaven to provide salvation for anyone who would place their faith in Him. And we need to tell the world that this is what Christmas means instead of us having our focuses be the same as what the culture's focus is. It doesn't mean that family traditions are bad. It doesn't mean that meals are bad. It doesn't mean that we can't enjoy opening presents and giving and getting. That's not bad. But when they become the focus, when that becomes what I do Christmas for, just like culture, then we're missing the point of the babe in the manger. We have only looked at the one small piece of puzzle that we have put together instead of looking at the grandeur of everything God has planned. Fulfilled prophecies are not the only way God identified His promised Savior. Angels also identified Jesus Christ as their Savior. Angels identified Jesus as the promised Savior. We see this in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Turn there with me, please. It'll be on page 1026 of the Pew Bible, which is the red book right in front of you. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph... Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a, man, a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will what? save 
his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the, prophet, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Here we have Joseph in a culture that would have shamed Mary. Think about this from Joseph's side. He has a wife in his mind. That's what betrothal meant. They had not come together. They were waiting for him to prepare a house and everything that had to happen for him to come and take his wife into his home. He'd been working on this. This wasn't like he was just waiting for a date. He was getting ready. He was preparing a home for his new bride, Mary, during the betrothal period. That's what normally happened. And then he finds out that she's with child. For any guy here, what would that do to you? What would that do to you when you found out that your fiancé was with child before the wedding? And Joseph, even in that pain, he could have made a spectacle of her. He could have divorced her publicly. And he said, no, I'm going to divorce her quietly. He he was a good man. He, He wanted to take care of even the one whom, from his perspective, had been unfaithful to him. But then we see an angel coming and telling Joseph, hold on, it's okay. This is a special child. You can take her as your wife. What did Joseph do? He did it. He did it at the command of God. He did it. He, he as a husband, as a, as a husband-to-be at this point in time, he believed God at his word through that angel. Do you know what Joseph had to live with for the rest of his married life? You married the unfaithful woman. That shame would not be taken away from Mary for the rest of her life. Think about going home to his parents. Were they going to find out that Mary was pregnant? It wasn't going to be hidden for long. And he looks at his parents, he looks at his dad, he looks at his mom especially and says, I'm going to marry her anyway. Can you imagine the household? But the angel came and said, this is the Savior of the world. And Joseph, I need you to marry her anyway. And he said, yes, Lord. He said, yes, Lord. We also find angels announcing the identity of this Savior in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. That's on page 1090 of your pew Bible. So turn with me, please, to Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 8 through 14. Excuse me, Luke chapter 2, not Luke chapter 1. Starting at verse 8. Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel of the Lord said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people, not just the Jews. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is whom? Christ the Lord. How accurate was that identification? Here is the Savior, capital S, that God has promised centuries ago. 
And he is here now. He is Christ the Lord. He is Christ the Lord. I'm not sure we can imagine the shock registered by the shepherds who received the announcement of Jesus' birth. They didn't have the most exciting job in the world. I mean, they, they didn't have street lights. They didn't have lamps in the way that we have. And if you've ever been out in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the night, even with a fire there, how dark is it? And all of a sudden, it's like day. The glory of the Lord shone round about them. You think they'd be scared? How about you? I would. And they said, don't be, because we have come here to announce to you that God is keeping His promise to send a Savior. God in His sovereignty chose lowly shepherds to be eyewitnesses that Jesus was the promised Savior. God not only identified His promised Savior through angelic announcement, He also used men to declare Jesus was the promised Savior. First we have John the Baptist. In John 1.29, we see the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. What does that say? He is the what? The Savior of the world. He takes away the sin of the world. We also see the Samaritans. A group of people who were hated by the Jews. They hated each other. They despised each other. And so we see God using this group of people. Jesus had been at the well, had talked to a woman at the well. She had believed in him, and she went and told the town, what? This man told me about my life. And so they come out and meet him, and there's discussion afterwards, and here's what the town says. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves because they talked to Jesus, and we know this is indeed the Savior of the world. From the story, from the surrounding story, who do we know absolutely who that was? Jesus Christ. Then we see Peter in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Who's he talking about? Jesus Christ. There is no one else that can save. There is no one else that has fulfilled the prophecies. There's no one else that the angels talked about. It is Jesus Christ, the one who came to save the world as promised by God all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We also have Paul. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. We have angels declaring and identifying Jesus Christ as the Savior. We have Paul and Peter and the Samaritans all declaring Jesus Christ, identifying Him as the Savior. God has confirmed the identity of His promised Savior through prophecy through the pronouncements of angels and through various people that he revealed himself to. There's only one question that needs to be asked before I close this morning. Did Jesus Christ identify himself as a Savior? I mean, everybody else said, this is the Savior. 
There's no doubt through the prophecies that he fulfilled. There's no doubt through the angelic announcements. There's no doubt through the men who knew that he was the Savior. But did Jesus Christ accept that? Did Jesus Christ see himself as the Savior? Because that's really important. Because if he didn't see himself as the Savior, we have a problem. But he did. Look at Luke chapter 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to do what? This is Jesus speaking. To seek and save the lost. Did he see himself as being the Savior? He said, my reason for coming is to save you. Jesus Christ left heaven, was incarnated in human flesh, and from his perspective, he did it for each of you that has accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. You are benefiting from the Savior that was identified in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We need to look at this babe in the manger differently. Think of the thousands of years and all the nations and all the things that had to happen for Jesus Christ to end up and fulfill all these prophecies and be the babe in the manger. Think about that. And He did it so that He could save you and I when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Christmas is about. It's just not a cute play with kids up on the stage. Why did He come? To seek and save. He came as a lowly babe in the manger to die on a cross approximately 33 years later. He came knowing that He was going to die. He came to die and fulfill the prophecies. We also find Him speaking to this in John chapter 12, verse 47. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to what? Save the world. Jesus didn't come to earth to judge the world when he came as a babe in the manger. That was his first advent. That was his first appearing. He didn't come to judge anybody during his first appearing. He came to save the world. He came to die on the cross. Does this mean that Jesus won't judge? No, when does Jesus come back again to judge at his second coming? But his first coming, this first advent, he came to save the world. He came to save all those who had placed their faith in him. So as we conclude this morning, we need to be abundantly settled in our hearts, and our minds, that God made sure there would be no chance of mistaken identity when it comes to knowing who His promised Savior is. Have there been, throughout the centuries, men and women who have tried to steal Jesus' identity? Absolutely. People who are claiming to be Christ and to be the, the, the prophet, and there are been, there's too many to go through. And God in eternity past, in His sovereignty, knew that there would be people who would try to steal the identity of His Son. But He revealed Him in such a way, through prophecy, through angelic pronouncement, through men, and through Jesus' own lips, I am the Savior. Jesus Christ is the Savior. There is nobody else that could lay in that manger and say that. Has God identified who our Savior is? He has. There is no doubt. And you need to, this 
Advent season, this Christmas season, you need to look at that babe in the manger in a whole different light. He is just not the babe in the manger. He is God's answer to our sin problem in human flesh that was predicted thousands and thousands of years before. That's what we celebrate for. Let's pray. Father God, we praise your name for making it abundantly clear that Jesus Christ is your promised Savior. There's no doubt. There's no confusion. Jesus Christ, the babe in the manger, is the one who can save us from our sins. Thank you for that revelation. Thank you for the clarity of that revelation. Thank you, Lord God, that when we look at the Bible, that we can honestly evaluate and say nobody else can ever make these claims. Father, thank you for loving us enough to send your son to die from on the cross for us. Thank you for giving us the story of the babe in the manger so that we can see how you did that through your son, through his incarnation, through his life, and eventually through his death. Father, I pray that each of us here would burn in our souls as we saw two men on the Emmaus Road last week, that our souls would burn with a fervor knowing that Jesus Christ is our Savior and that you sent him to die for us. And that you've been faithful to us in keeping your promise to do that. Father, thank you. In Christ's name, amen.